Al Jazeera podcast. Why did Turkey change its mind on Sweden's NATO membership? At its annual summit, the alliance is set to expand as it faces new security challenges. So how will this change the geopolitical landscape in Europe? I'm Mohamed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. All right, for more on all this, I'm joined by our guests. In Washington, D.C. is Robert Hunter, former U.S. ambassador to NATO and senior fellow at the Center for Transatlantic Relations at Johns Hopkins University. In Brussels is Mats Engström, senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And in Istanbul is Sinan Ulgan, former Turkish diplomat and senior fellow at Carnegie Europe. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Robert, let me start with you today. How important is it that NATO display unity at this summit, and how much unity is there right now amongst NATO members? Well, that's the nature of the summit, to show unity, particularly to Mr. Putin in Moscow. And in fact, it's to try to make sure that all the allies are indeed uh, on the same page when it comes to confronting uh, what Mr. Putin is doing with his war in Ukraine. That includes uh, getting each of the allies uh, to meet the so-called target goal of uh, 2% of gross domestic product uh, spent on defense, which is uh, key to uh, three years—well, uh, actually, for next year. Uh, that That's the point. There is going to be unity on that. Uh, there are going to be disagreements, and the basic disagreement is the point at which Ukraine will be asked to join NATO. Uh, it's not going to happen now, and frankly, I don't think it's ever going to happen, but uh, Mr. Zelensky of, U of Ukraine is pushing very hard to get the strongest commitment he possibly can. Matt, how much has the war in Ukraine changed NATO's relevance? And has Russia's invasion of Ukraine only served to strengthen the alliance? Well, I think in many ways the Western unity over uh, Ukraine and the supporting Ukraine against its aggression is uh, impressive. It has been a lot of discussion before on the divisions both within NATO and within the European Union. but. Uh, so far, there has been an impressive unity, and in that sense, I think it has also strengthened NATO. Sinan, um, after repeatedly blocking Sweden's membership, Turkey now says that it's ready to support it. Why? Why the change in the decision? Uh, what did Turkey get in return? Fundamentally, two things. Uh, one, uh, an explicit commitment by Sweden uh, to be more disciplined uh, regarding the monitoring uh, and prevention of uh, the uh, recruitment, fundraising activities of uh, terrorist-linked entities in Sweden. Um, and uh, yesterday, the uh, MOU that was signed uh, also sets up a, a bilateral mechanism between Turkey and Sweden to monitor this. Uh, so this is uh, one uh, clear area where uh, things have changed from the Turkish perspective. And the second one, which will become uh, perhaps more concrete in coming days, is a, a U.S. commitment to deliver uh, the, uh, the package of F-16s, uh, which uh, Turkey had asked. Uh, until the Vilnius summit, there was no firm commitment on the, on the side of the U.S. Uh, administration, uh, claiming that fundamentally it's up to Congress uh, to approve this. 
But now it seems that things have also changed uh, and that the uh, U.S. Uh, administration has told the Turkish side that this transaction will go through. And this is what has uh, essentially led uh, to the agreement uh, in Vilnius. Robert, you heard Sinan there talk about the issue of the F-16s. Uh, the U.S. Uh, has announced that it will move ahead with the transfer of F-16 fighter jets to Turkey in consultation with Congress. This happened just a day after Turkey gave the green light for Sweden joining NATO. Is this what it was bound to come down to? I don't believe there was ever a chance that Mr. Erdogan uh, would uh, deny Sweden uh, membership in NATO. Uh, we've just been talking about the price. Uh, at one point uh, last week, uh, Mr. Erdogan uh, talked about uh, getting back to negotiations uh, for Turkey joining uh, uh, the European Union. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, he's, his real price has been, as you said, twofold uh, for the Swedes to do more uh, to block uh, Kurdish activities uh, within uh, Sweden, and secondly, to make sure they would get uh, these arms from uh, the United States. Uh, it came down to the end. That's the way Turkey negotiates. It's not the only country uh, that uh, is a smart negotiator. Mats, let me ask you, when it comes to Sweden joining NATO, what kind of a timeline are we looking at when it comes to that happening? I think that depends a lot upon uh, Turkey's now uh, ratification procedure and also on Hungary that still has not ratified as well. Some people in Sweden are hoping for a very, very rapid ratification before the Turkish parliament summer recess, but as far as I understand, it's more likely to happen during the autumn and the same with Hungary. But after those decisions, it's a matter of days, as I understand it. I'm also uh, not an expert on the U.S. Congress, but uh, I might also think that uh, until there is clear public statements from the leadership in the U.S. Congress about these F-16 airplanes, that uh, Turkey might not uh, go for the full ratification before that. But that's just my speculation. Sinan, uh, President Erdogan has been able to achieve this delicate balance in managing his relationship with NATO as well as his relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now, with Turkey's agreement to back Sweden as a NATO member, as well as President Erdogan's statement that Ukraine deserves membership in NATO, how much does that complicate the Turkey-Russia relationship? It does. Um, you're right in uh, stating that uh, Turkey has crafted a delicate balance in its foreign policy uh, towards uh, Russia, Ukraine and uh, the NATO allies uh, since the beginning of the war. Uh, but that balance is shifting. And we see that very clearly uh, since uh, the end of the electoral cycle uh, in Turkey. Uh, with uh, a number of different developments, uh, one of them indeed uh, Erdogan strongly backing the accession of Ukraine uh, to NATO. But also, incidentally, when uh, Zelensky was in Turkey, uh, he went back home uh, with the commanders of the Azov regiment, uh, who supposedly were to remain in Turkey, and that also uh, led to a reaction in Moscow. Um, and now this uh, also uh, the, the green lighting of Sweden's mm. accession to NATO. When you take all of that, 
it, it, it looks as if Turkey's policy on Russia is also shifting mm -hmm. as Turkey is turning more towards the West, but mm -hmm. also as a result of an assessment that uh, Russia is weakening both on the ground in Ukraine, but also more particularly for Putin in Russia itself. Sinan, let me follow up with you on that point. Is part of this calculation that might be happening now when it comes to President Erdogan's assessment of President Putin, is part of that that President Erdogan feels perhaps he has more leverage on President Putin after this mutiny that was staged by the Wagner Group? I mean, does President Erdogan perceive President Putin to be more of a weakened figure right now? Yes, I would, uh, I would say so not just because of the uh, uprising in Russia, but generally uh, today Turkey is the only NATO country that has a high-level political engagement with Russia. It's the only NATO country that has not implemented sanctions against Russia. The air corridor remains open. Uh, so this has become even more valuable for Russia as Russia is increasingly isolated. And that uh, provides leverage uh, for uh, for Turkey and Erdogan to reshift the balance uh, in its relationship with Russia. Robert, when it comes to President Biden's presence at the summit, obviously he's working, uh, he's walking a bit of a diplomatic tightrope here. He's a lot that he has to balance. How much concern is there among NATO members right now about upcoming elections in the U.S. in 2024? How much worry is there that perhaps a figure like Donald Trump could be reelected or that uh, a GOP White House win next year could shatter NATO going forward? have to remember, it's a long time between now and the U.S. elections, even though we already have everybody talking about them. And it's not even clear that Mr. Trump will uh, be the Republican nominee. Uh, there has been some weakness on the, uh, if that's the right word, on the Republican side for continuing to spend as much money uh, on the Ukraine war. And the allies may wonder about that. But what Mr. Biden is doing is making sure everybody knows that the United States is locked in to supporting Ukraine as much as is required, short of a direct military confrontation with Russia, to help Ukraine do as much as possible in this war. Uh, it's not really about Ukraine joining NATO. It's about solidarity by the alliance uh, to push back against Russia. And with the United States being firmly committed on that, uh, there is really no further doubt uh, that that's going to happen. Uh, it is, the waters have been muddied by the question about whether uh, Ukraine or when Ukraine would join NATO. But the solidity of U.S. support for uh, Ukraine has been made clear by the president of the United States. And that is the thing that matters at NATO. Mats, Kyiv accepts that it will not be able to join NATO while at war with Russia. But how much consensus is there right now among NATO members that Ukraine would be able to join when the war ends? And what are the hurdles to that happening? Well, I think uh, uh, there is uh, divisions within NATO on that, as has been publicly reported, with the U.S. and Germany taking a more cautious line. And I think we will not, re there will be statements and uh, uh, joint uh, declarations. Uh, Zelensky will visit the NATO summit tonight, I understand. Uh, but I think we will not really know that until the war is over and we know how that outcome 
looks uh, um, the language now will be more general about uh, the long-term process of uh, uh, membership and not with any concrete promises. But if there, for example, would be a negotiated outcome, which uh, people don't want to talk about, uh, where Russia somehow retains the Crimea, it might be rather difficult for NATO to allow uh, Ukraine into the alliance uh, with that situation still there. I don't know. We will see. Robert, I saw you nodding along to some of what Mats was saying there, and it looked like you wanted to jump in. So please go ahead. Well, I'm uh, kind of a loner on this. I don't think Ukraine is ever going to join NATO because it takes an absolute consensus of all 31 countries. And right now, it's the United States and Germany are out in front, but a lot of countries are hiding behind them, notably France and, and the United Kingdom. And when it comes down to it, a decision by individual countries to be willing to go to war for Ukraine, to declare war on Russia if it were to, after the war, to renew fighting against Ukraine, is just something many of the allies are just not going to do. So this is a distraction. The basic thing at the summit is to show unity of purpose and unity of action in terms of what's actually done, not just words, to oppose the uh, Russian aggression. How far that will have to be pushed back before there could be serious negotiations is a matter of, uh, of a debate. Uh, I suspect in the final analysis, uh, Russia will have, if not permanent uh, gains in Crimea, uh, certainly a special relationship there uh, that will go on uh, for the indefinite future. Uh, Mats, I saw you reacting now to what Robert was saying. Uh, did you want to jump in as well? Well, I can uh, agree to a lot of that. And it's one thing to make these declarations uh, and another with the hard Article 5 security guarantees. But I also want just to emphasize that the massive support that NATO has given to Ukraine so far and the new commitments now on further weapons deliveries from France, for example, and also Germany now uh, today, I think. So, so, I mean, one should not underestimate other kinds of support that uh, NATO is giving Ukraine to win this war. So, so that is also an expression, I think, of solidarity with Ukraine. Uh, Sinan, let me get your perspective on all this. Uh, NATO membership is something that can take decades to achieve. Ukraine wants a commitment for a much quicker timeline. Is that something that can actually happen? Um, to some extent, it can, because there is a discussion uh, as we speak in NATO uh, about whether lifting uh, the requirements of first offering uh, a membership action plan, which was the pathway for past enlargements, uh, can also be can be done for Ukraine, because if that condition is lifted, uh, then we would indeed be talking about a more accelerated uh, timeline for Ukraine membership, provided that uh, there is a consensus within NATO uh, for an enlargement uh, to Ukraine. And Sinan, let me also ask you, uh, from your vantage point, how is NATO changing the power dynamic across Europe right now? After the war in Ukraine, uh, of course, NATO has uh, come uh, to, the, uh, to the forefront uh, as the main guarantor of European security. Uh, it's become clear that despite uh, many efforts uh, since uh, the burgeoning of European security and defense identity, 
uh, Europe on its own uh, is not going to be able uh, to provide for this type of hardcore security guarantees for Europe or for the neighborhood of Europe. Uh, and therefore, we've seen very clearly countries committing themselves even more firmly to NATO, accepting to fulfill the 2% uh, spending uh, threshold. Countries like Sweden and Finland, uh, after many, many decades of neutrality, wanting to join NATO. A country like Germany, who for historical reasons um, had not had you know, significant defense budgets, uh, accepting to upgrade their defense commitments. So, uh, and ultimately, uh, all, of these, uh, all of these countries and all of these developments are strengthening NATO's role uh, in Europe uh, for, for the security of the continent. Robert, what are NATO leaders most concerned about right now? And, and what would cause the most disagreement among member nations now? Well, the biggest concern right now is solidarity uh, against uh, Russian aggression which is to continue prosecuting the war uh, as far as is necessary. Now, one thing that is not being discussed, uh, maybe not even in private, is what does that mean in practical terms when people talk about a Ukrainian victory? Uh, so far, Mr. Biden has been extremely careful about providing just enough weaponry and getting other countries to provide weaponry to help Ukraine prevail on the immediate battlefield, but not to give them so much that they could actually drive uh, Russia into a corner uh, by being, let's say, pushed entirely out of uh, not just the uh, disputed region in the main, if, let's say, mainland uh, Ukraine, but also uh, in Crimea. So there has to be a balance struck there. So th that is the real issue here at the summit. Will there be solidarity in doing that? The Swedish issue was always a side issue. Uh, when and if Ukraine actually joins NATO is also another side issue. It's important, critical, as the president of the United States made clear the other day, that Mr. Putin get the message that he will not be able to crack the will of NATO uh, and that the battle will continue until he gets that message and is willing to negotiate something less than he has been demanding. Uh, Mats, you heard Robert there talk about the message that NATO would like to convey to President Putin. Uh, Moscow has warned that it's monitoring the summit carefully. What kind of a response do you think we might see from President Putin going forward? Well, I think in the current situation, uh, his options are rather limited. If you go back now to the Baltic Sea area and Sweden and Finland's accession, uh, Russia was threatening different kinds of actions, and they will certainly change their military posture in that area. But for now, the Russian army in particular is so decimated by the war in Ukraine that uh, their options are not uh, that big. Uh, but uh, I am sure that they are considering uh, uh, other options. Uh, uh, and we do have both in the EU and NATO also uh, uh, some governments that are rather close to, to Russia. We have an upcoming election in Slovakia as well. This is not the kind of, uh, I mean, this is more an influence uh, uh, that is hidden. But, but uh, I think they are considering very many options, but that their ability now is rather limited.
Uh, Sinan, I'd like to talk for a few more minutes about um, how much concern there is among some NATO nations uh, when it comes to promises of potential membership to Ukraine. Um, is, is the fear essentially that this would give Russia an incentive to both escalate and to drag out the war? Well, there is that, but also there is the more long-term uh, issue of uh, basically whether Ukraine's territorial integrity can be guaranteed, uh, because indeed uh, we don't know what sort of political settlement will uh, emerge uh, after the war. Hopefully, it will emerge uh, in a way that guarantees Ukraine territorial integrity. But if it does not, for instance, if crime, if, if Russia decides uh, to uh, not even negotiate the status of Crimea, for instance, that's going to be a, a huge issue for NATO because uh, countries uh, will uh, need to uh, enter NATO with their full territorial integrity. That's also somewhat the case for Georgia. So that's, in a way, also a, a big concern. But I just want to come back to the question that you would ask Ambassador Hunter. I think the biggest concern today in Europe about NATO is about the future of U.S. politics. And this is something that you already alluded to uh, a moment ago, uh, because uh, the European leaders have experienced the Trump era. They saw how Trump, how Trump had uh, actually uh, gone as far as discrediting the credibility of Article 5. And now there is uh, another prospect, which is about China and Taiwan. So uh, a, a different U.S. government uh, that would have uh, other proclivities might uh, very soon turn and pivot to East Asia. Um, and therefore, uh, it would also uh, be um, an impediment uh, to overall NATO deterrence at a time when war in the center of Europe is still continuing. So that's one of the major concerns that you hear in Europe about the future of NATO. Uh, Matt, up until a few years ago, NATO was seen by a lot of people as, well, some would say growingly ineffective, uh, maybe not as important as it had been in the past. Um, now it seems to be a moment where its stature is changing a lot, it's reshaping geopolitics in Europe and beyond. How much has the perception of NATO changed in the moment that we're in right now? Yes, I think uh, you're right in that, that it has changed and uh, it has shown, as we have discussed, the unity uh, in supporting Ukraine. Uh, but that is, for now, if we see this as a long-term process, I agree it will also depend on what the next uh, US president will do. And uh, there is already the discussion within the European NATO allies uh, of the need to build more of uh, their own capabilities as part of NATO, but also because of a more general US shift towards Asia and the Pacific region. So, how the picture will look on NATO. We don't know the outcome of the Russian war of Ukraine. Of course, hopefully there will be a victory of a kind for, for Ukraine. Uh, and that will be that NATO has this credibility now. But I still think these challenges remain that were discussed a lot a few years ago, uh, also under the Trump administration of the long-term mm -hmm. uh, resilience of the alliance. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Robert Hunter, Mats Engstrom, and Sinan Ulgan.
This episode was produced by Mohamed Aishi, Katya Lopez Hodoyan, Abla Kla, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Philip Morrison. The program was edited by Alexander Otashevich, Khaled Sultan, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next episode. This week on The Take, Nigeria's new president has been moving fast to try and fix the economy. Will it pay off or cause more pain for the people? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.